0: Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He is Isaac Fitzgerald. You want to know how the State of the Union is going? Oh, I'll tell you the State of the Union. Not well, bitch. That's, that's how the Union's doing.
1: Uh-huh. Thank you for asking. Not well, uh-huh. bitch. Listen, we stayed up past our bedtime. We did. We
0: watched it.
1: We watched it together.
0: And here we are now hosting am to
1: dm And here we are hosting am to dm Let's start with the clap heard around the world. Woo. Alex Goldsmith, you tweeted... Nancy Pelosi is the perfect amount of petty we all should aspire to have. I mean that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you done, you, good you, morning. Oh, you made it to. Good oh, morning. you made it to work. Who's
0: hosting our morning show? Who's <laughs> hosting our morning show? Uh, I talk to dogs and babies that way. So, I <laughs> uh, said Wesley uh, gave Twitter this gift because the memes that she gave us with that clap were yes. are everything. Uh, <laughs> me seeking validation through social media. My mom hitting like on every Facebook post. Oh, yeah.
1: just you're doing, you're doing Ooh, amazing, you sweetie. Doing so you're doing amazing. You are doing sweetie. so good. It's also all about location, right? Like yeah, yeah. That, the fact yeah, that she's she right had, him. it's just, it's that got, got that. dramatic ass copy of that. This. That perfect moment, exactly. <laughs> um, Mikkel Gillette, you tweeted. When I tell my wife I changed a diaper. Oh, That's right. That is what yes. your wife, yeah. It's just, oh, you're doing your job. Who's
0: a father who takes care of his child? <laughs> doing Who's 50% father? of the
1: work. There's no toxic
0: masculinity <laughs> around here. All right. Uh, Isaac. Isaac. <laughs>
1: Just for the record, (laughs) we don't think Nancy Pelosi actually speaks that way. I don't know. (laughs) Isaac,
0: I I gotta say, so we were at this party. It was fun last night. Uh, It helped make the ordeal of how long it was uh, doable. Um, But at one point I looked up. At the moment that clap happened, Isaac was in the weeds, Mm. just like, I got another meme. I got another meme.
1: I know a memeable picture when I see it, and that was (laughs) a memeable picture. That was it.
0: So there are a lot of examples, but here's just one of Isaac's tweets about it. Uh, Me to myself when I drink water. Yeah. Who's (laughs) thirsty? I also had Who's eating
1: thirsty? salad. Uh, the guy <laughs> at the gym at the front desk when I walk in after three weeks of not coming. Yeah,
0: I did one because it made me think of um, the choreography, like Beyonce's "End of Time"
1: when she's like, oh, yeah, was like, so, no. very nice. See Nancy Pelosi now. levels, but it wasn't all Nancy though, sadly. Sadly, Alas. it wasn't just that. Uh, Southpaw, you tweeted Joshua Trump. Oh, man, this kid. And I, again, that was a nice moment. But then it did go really long. It I'm was with long. Joshua on this one. He was just <laughs> kind of like, you know what? After an hour, yeah, I'm
0: conking like, out. It's kind of long. And it was... uh 82 minutes last night. Um, uh, President 82 Cl- Yeah, President Bill Clinton still ha- has a record of like 89 minutes. Okay. For, for recent history. It's just like, that was a long time just to be talking, <laughs> uh,
1: but to be talking like that. And he didn't have a glass of water or nothing. I felt like his voice got like a little raspy. Oh, he didn't, he have, didn't. have a glass but of water. But what else, is, like for me, like the tie, mm. uh, that moment when he first, I don't know if you noticed Trump first walked up. I, indeed I his, did. His tie was askew. Yeah, look at that bright ass red tie, just like and manifest he, like, destiny going well. I talked to Pence and Pence wasn't like, like, I want you to know that if you had a moment like that, I'd be like, hey, hey baby, just straighten it up a little bit. And he did, that didn't happen. Pence if was like, were, good luck up there, buddy. If you were my vice president and you let
0: me go up there or like my hair was like, I would kick your yeah, ass as soon as right? we were back in like, the like, White like, House.
1: Like, I wanted I to know, know, was it taped to this <laughs> side? Was it tucked into his pants? What was going on there? I, we
0: welcome your theories for why <laughs> the hell his tie was way over there. Um, but there was a lot. I mean, uh, we. I want to talk about the women. Amen. For a lot of reasons. Um, one, of course, you know, shout out to the midterms and giving us, you know, so many new women in Congress. That's great. Representation matters. But also wearing white, which was an homage to the suffragettes. And we're going to talk more about this later. But I just wanted to say how it stands out, right? right. The visuals right. Um, and the way, of course, everyone where everyone is seated. It's, it's very important. And there is a reason, for example, you don't see us wearing white on TV. I think I walked in with a cream sweater once. And they were like, you got to go change. Because it's like, boom, it's exactly. so bright. Like, look at our mugs. So just seeing all that white. Out there yeah, on, well, on one side of the room
1: um, well, uh, was, was well, there really white right on the other side. It just wasn't clothing. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a lot of, I'm just saying. Screaming, yeah, screaming. I'm yeah, so saying.
0: we'll get into the details with that more. But
1: also, no, there it was, was like, for me, it was Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz with the beard, that really stuck out to me. Here's, just HD in general, maybe not great for anyone. Uh, but Ted Cruz, I'm like, does he shave? I really want to know this. If somebody can tell me this, please tweet at me. Does he shave that middle chip? Is he doing the full I just Wolverine? Think he's like, can't grow it out. He looked like a puffy Wolverine. I didn't hate it.
0: I didn't hate it. Also, uh, and it's weird to just be like, huh, the Holocaust? A lot of Holocaust. World War II. A I mean, lot they, it was a really talk. big part of the speech, and I, you know, it's like got a lot going on. I look forward to reading from people who've thought longer and more deeply mm. about anti-Semitism and history. But mm. to me, given Charlottesville, given Bannon, Alt right, neo-Nazis, both sides, uh, to see him invoking Holocaust mm. survivors and victims, it, it it felt weird. And then like happy birthday. Yeah, to that you. happy
1: birthday moment where they sang to the survivor, which of course very nice moment, but it's like that one person started singing it, and then everyone Else in the chambers was like, I guess we're going along with this. Mm-hmm. And listen, he basically played the hits. Though he started off with like, <laughs> oh, don't forget, we freed Europe. Uh, also, we got a man to the moon. He was like, did hey, you know? The beginning, <laughs> but listen, so there was a lot. Let's take it to yeah. the timeline. Twitter. Ooh. What stood out most to you? From last night's State of the Union, let us know using the hashtag AM2. There's so much standing and sitting. It's, it's like a Catholic mass. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of, mm-hmm. yeah. A U-S-A. Oh, U-S-A. God. U-S-A. Mm-hmm. And uh, Alexandra just like, nope.
0: Uh, well, here's a tweet from Tarini Party about last night. Donald Trump's State of the Union bipartisan dreams were divorced from his own reality. And I know, like divorce, it. It happens for him often. Well, let's go live from the district now with BuzzFeed News politics reporter Lisa Andrevia. She was on Capitol Hill last night. Good morning, Lisa.
2: Good morning. I also stayed up way past my bedtime. Oh
0: yeah, and we were like, oh, this is bad. This is not. That
1: said, I feel like you showed up. I mean, I'm wearing a hat, you know. Like you, at least, you
0: you, you look camera ready, Lisa. I laid out my clothes last night.
1: All right, Lisa. uh, To that point, from
0: uh, that tweet from Tarini, how far did Trump get into a State of the Union address last night before he did disconnect from reality?
2: Not very far at all. You know, he got to the line where he's like, the state of our union is strong and Nancy Pelosi sitting right behind him and I see her do the littlest head shake. Um, So the reality is that that Trump walked in, started talking about bipartisanship and then Democrats walked out of the House chamber and all the ones that I talked to were like, I don't think that was a genuine gesture. Um, And even on the things that we could maybe work with him on, we're going to need to see a lot more detail. But the reality is, and I feel like I say this every time that I'm on here, the reality is that House Democrats control the House and Senate Republicans control the Senate and it's a tough political reality to find any room for compromise.
1: To find any room where they're actually gonna meet in the middle. Now like you mentioned you were you were you, you spoke to many people after the State of the Union. You talked to AOC, what did she have to say?
2: She came out, she, she did a a TV interview and then I caught up with her with a bunch of other reporters on her way out of the building and she was wearing her guest. I'm sure you saw pictures because she looked stunning in her white with her guest. Um, and, and she was asked about the line that Trump gave during his speech where he's talking about how America's never gonna be a socialist uh, country. And she she just kind of laughed and was like, yeah, I thought that was f- fabulous. It shows that that we got under his skin. Um, and she was talking about how Trump sort of, she, she thinks that Trump is sort of feeling like everything's closing in on him, that public opinion is against him, but she walked out feeling pretty good. And you could kind of see in the close-ups given of her during the speech that she was kind of sitting there unimpressed.
0: Yeah, I saw that some people noticed that that. that she had liked a few Instagram posts during the State of the Union. AOC was on her phone? (laughs) Yeah, because you know you can see everything people like and stuff. It was like, all right, girl. Um, And yeah, and it stood out to me, I mean, it's pretty outstanding. A freshman congresswoman, the youngest congressperson in U.S. history, and the president of the United States is giving a specific call out to her politics during a State of Union. That's pretty uh, remarkable. But also, there were a lot of, you know, 2020 hopefuls, contenders uh, in the room. Did any of their responses or, you know, facial expressions stand out to you last night?
2: Totally, 2020 candidates definitely want to have a standout moment, right? Kirsten Gillibrand um, actually tweeted a, a GIF of her um, kind of rolling her eyes during during the speech and fundraised off of that. Then they came out. Um, she she gave like a little toss out comment about about Donald Trump. Cory Booker came out. He sat down and did a did a, an interview, and then you know we were all kind of waiting around, waiting for him to finish so we could ask him questions, um, and then he didn't want to take any more questions, which is unfortunate because we all have a lot of questions for the people who want to run for president, but we chased them all across the Capitol. And then it really, we, we kept up with him, but he didn't want to take our questions. Yeah, so he, they were kind of just whisked right out.
1: Speak to us, you coward. <laughs> Some people just kept <laughs> it moving. Well, listen, I want to ask, the shutdown is yet again looming. I believe the TikTok. date is February 15th mm. where does this leave us uh in terms of the shutdown and and like February 15th does that mean they have to have the decision by then does that mean they're do- right. they're, they're working on cuz now- it's like committee what's going on
2: that's a great question. I would say that after the State of the Union address, um, the needle hasn't moved in any way. We're no closer to to a deal. Donald Trump didn't walk in there to to try to convince Democrats of anything. And I don't think that anybody walked in there and had their mind changed during the speech. So I don't think we're any closer to a deal. Um, and I'm already seeing reports that maybe we'll need a stopgap measure to get us past the February 15th deadline. Um, but yeah, the conference committee is meeting. Um, they have an Announced, they have not announced a, a deal. And in a perfect world, right, you want them to to announce that they have a deal, give the House and Senate plenty of time to consider what they are going to be voting on, um, and then you know get it passed before the deadline. Uh, the the reality, as we've seen in the last two years, um, where where we've seen a lot of shutdowns, is that often lawmakers are are scrambling to get a last minute deal. Um, and and February fifteenth is coming right up. Mm-hmm.
1: State of the Union, like you said, not well, bitch. Mm -mm. Uh, Lastly, here's a tweet from NBC's Casey Hunt after Trump's comment on women creating new jobs. (laughs) Unintended consequence of that line, all the women who kicked Republican men out of their seats are cheering because, well, yes, they did take most of the jobs. (laughs) Lisa, that was a wild moment. You could almost see Trump realize that he had kind of lost that moment. A lot happened very quickly. Can you break that moment down for us?
2: Trump was talking about how there are new American jobs and House Democrats took that literally. There's a record number of female lawmakers in Congress, and that's largely due to all of the new freshman female lawmakers that came in when Democrats took the House. So they all stood up. You could see one of the lawmakers raising the roof. They're pointing at each other. They're high fiving each other. They're feeling great. And you see Donald Trump up there and he's like. You weren't supposed to do that. So you could see you could see kind of the the shock, the surprise that came with with uh, Democrats just feeling a lot, a lot more chipper now that they control the House than they have in past years.
0: Absolutely. And I understand you also spoke to uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, who, of course, is running in 2020 as well. Did she speak about uh, the presence of women in Congress?
2: Very, very briefly. And her comment was just that she didn't think the president understood that he was the reason that there are more female lawmakers in Congress. That
1: he is the reason. Well, Lisa, thank (laughs) you so much for joining us this morning and for all of your reporting.
2: Thank you for having me. See you guys later. See ya. All right, we want to uh,
0: leave it with this incredible tweet from Chase Mitchell. Uh, Trump taking credit for there being more women in Congress is like the fire Festival guy saying, you're welcome (laughs) for
1: all the documentaries. We made such good content. Well, (laughs) we're turning now to last night's Democratic response. Here's a tweet from Jake Tapper. Source close to Stacey Abrams says she didn't watch the president's speech, and indeed she focused on his policies not his words tonight. Source also says Abrams wrote the speech herself. Hmm, that sounds like a contrast. Well, Darren Sands tweeted this.
0: This Stacey Abrams speech reminds me how many people talked to me about how they were afraid for her, especially for her to fail publicly. But Abrams never had any of that fear for herself.
1: And it showed. Mm. Joining us now to talk about Stacey Abrams' response last night is BuzzFeed News Politics reporter, Darren Sands. Good morning, Darren. Morning,
3: guys. What's up? Good to see you again. Good
1: to see you, Good to too. see you as well. So, listen, you covered Stacey Abrams throughout her historic campaign for governor of Georgia. What was it like seeing her give the official Democratic response last night?
3: You know, it's, these things are sort of designed, right, to give a counterpoint um, to the president's address. And I think unless there is some sort of gaffe or, you know, someone like Joe Kennedy is putting too much chapstick on his face or... Um, you know, something like Marco Rubio getting water and it's looking kind of like nervous and not really knowing what he's doing, sort of like a deer in the headlights. Unless something like that happens, these things aren't really that memorable. But I think the one thing that Stacy was able to do is to make this thing memorable. Here was, you know, an accomplished woman, a writer, a politician, someone who as a lawmaker and a, a leader in the Georgia state legislature was able to work across the aisle. And she gave a very, very clear example of that. So it really did remind me of how she campaigned. She campaigned as someone who w- wanted to reach across the other side and and didn't think and didn't say that, you know, Republicans were terrible all the time. And what she also didn't do in this speech, which reminded me of her campaign as well, and I can get into some of the stuff about voters, what voters talked to me about, but the other thing that she did really well was just not talk about Trump and as president of the United States as a fraudulent person. I don't even think voters really think that, um, you know, that Trump is telling the truth all the time. But this idea that she sort of presented that we need him to tell the truth, I thought was something that was just really interesting and one of the um, clear messages that I think Democrats going forward in this process, um, not just with the investigations, but also with the election, yeah. um, is going to be really pivotal for them coming up.
0: Yeah. It was, it was such a, a contrast for, for many reasons. I mean, I, we were speaking this morning about, like, her second sentence was, like, Happy Lunar New Year. And it was like, oh, wow, like, just like she's an immediate... She's wearing red. <laughs> yeah, yeah. she's wearing red. Like, just an immediate nod to, we're coming at this from a different way. What else stood out to you, though, about, like, the optics um, of, of her speech, her presence last night?
3: You know, her presence, I mean, I, I tweeted last night that, you know, um, her background as a, as a writer, as a novelist, and this is something you could relate to, Said. I think her, her, her way with language language is, is w- one of these things that is so stark when you hear her in person, just her ability to communicate, I think, simply um, and in a way that, like, people can understand sometimes, even really, like, explaining. I had the story idea where I was going to talk about how she would explain in these long um, uh, town halls policy issue after policy issue, um, and obviously she's obviously a a woman of very high intellect, but the the way that she married her experience as a writer and as a politician, someone who could work across the aisle and also someone who's just a clear communicator. I think that all came out together. And I I think it showed why, um, the sort of the, the, the movement and politics that are behind, you know, the hashtag black women lead and hashtag, um, trust black women. I was texting earlier with one of the, um, women from Higher Heights, which is a group that works to elect black women. And you can just tell that she had this moment of pride and wanted to, I think, mark this moment because I think her loss in the Georgia election um, really kind of shook some of those people up. So it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how you know, they use her um, you know, going forward. Mm-hmm.
1: Going forward, it was, it was such a moment when she opened with that story. That's what stood oh, uh, to, to your point, yeah. Darren, her, this, the way she eloquently told that story about her father was just so impressive and so moving. Oh, yeah. And then kind of taking that small anecdote and tying it to a much larger message. So, Darren, do you think it's safe to say that uh, voting rights is going to be kind of a main staple in the run-up to 2020 for the Democrats?
3: I think... Um... For her, it's definitely going to be, you know, I talk about her background as a writer and politician and all that sort of stuff. but um, she's also an activist. and there was kind of a joke between some of the senior staff on her campaign was that she's the best writer, she's the best organizer, she's the best fundraiser, <laughs> she's the best all these things. And it kind of it, it kind of got me thinking about this idea that as an activist, she's also extremely effective and she really sees herself, Um, in the tradition of of civil rights activists who fought for these things. And she talks about in her book, Minority Leader, that this idea that um, people back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, were fighting against, you know, uh, segregation, public segregation, this, this, like, moral stain on our country. Um, She sees the voting rights fight as really in that same exact vein. So I think this is what you saw was sort of a marriage of 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 someone who has um, a lot of unique talents and is gonna be uh, obviously a force in democratic politics for years to come.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, Darren, glad you were able to watch last night and again, uh, join us this morning. See you guys. Um, So this does feel like a great time to be able to share with everyone that uh, Stacey Abrams will be joining us live on am to dm tomorrow from the great state of Georgia. No kidding, (laughs) really? (laughs)
1: Stacey Abrams is going to be here. We're going to talk
0: Stacey Abrams tomorrow? You and me? Yes, we are. Oh, wow. We we are incredibly excited. This is a great time to tweet us your questions. Like, this is it, guys. Um, We're excited to talk to her. But up next, uh, we have fire tweets. Stay tuned, like you didn't already know. Stacey Abrams. Uh, let's get into these fire let's, let's do let's it, talk about Capitol Hill enough. Uh, Floyd, you tweeted this. <laughs> first date, her. I'm really into philosophy. Me, trying to impress. I don't even exist. <laughs> 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 You're
1: hallucinating. Yeah, the problem. Yeah, we're just brains in jars, baby. <laughs> just brains in jars. This is the problem. I feel read by this because that's... Oh, I was a philosophy major. No. Dave. Yep. We're not going to talk about it. Downtown Josh Brown, you <laughs> tweeted... I press my thumb down on an app to delete it, causing all the other apps to tremble with fear. And in this moment, I am as great and terrible as a vengeful god of the ancient world. My cruelty, both capricious and final. (laughs) That's seriously how I feel when I, why, they do, they shake. Yeah, you scared, you scared.
0: (laughs) I also want to point out that um, his Twitter handle is Reformed Broker, And I'm like, well, I think we see where the aggression went. Josh. <laughs> Out there bullying he's, your apps. He's getting
1: scared. He I'm going leave you too. He's <laughs> leave them
0: alone. Leave them alone. All right. This next fire tweet comes from West. My co-worker said, fuck a two weeks notice. These motherfuckers gonna notice when I
1: leave. Mm, Bye. That is very true. <laughs> that is very, very And I feel
0: true. like it relates perfectly to this next tweet, actually. Okay, let's yeah, get into let's it then.
1: Courtney Brown, you tweeted, fake laughing at work gets tiring.
0: Yeah. Ooh, so good. Mm. I just felt like you bring like, ha-ha, ha-ha, <laughs> I quit.
1: Yeah, let me tell you, I'm, I'm going to shoot from the hip here. If you guys have any stories about uh, being um, fake at work, yes. you have any stories about Ooh. fake laughing at work, let us know using the hashtag game 2 dm Maybe not your current job, mm-hmm. but the one before.
0: I will, Can I confess something? Yeah, go nuts. I've noticed from watching the show that I have a fake laugh. Oh. I've, I've noticed when I'm, when I'm like, I'm just laughing to get through. What's it sound I'm like? I'm not going to tell you. All right, tweet of the day. <laughs> tweet of the day comes from Hussein. Let's do yeah. it. Uh, babies stare a lot for someone who doesn't know how to fight. <laughs> it's,
1: <laughs>
4: it's very
0: true. It's really funny. They yeah. start a lot Look of shit, out. babies. Yeah, I, but I saw someone reply to that tweet and I was like, Have you ever, like, little babies have, like, sharp little nails? <laughs> they got little.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I can kick a baby's ass. Oh, I can man. kick a baby. Get out of here with the sharp little nails. Me and a baby, me every time. Wow. Coming up. I talk about the Fuck Fuck Jerry movement, which is wild, and Flaps. I'm very excited about yeah. it. But first, we are going to talk with Dan Vergano about Trump's HIV plan.
0: We should have yeah. about the tweet we we're going to read before we read He mentioned that. Mentions like that in the little- State of the
1: Union as well. So we're going to get into that. You want to fight a baby? Yes. <laughs>
0: Welcome back. Uh, Here's a tweet from Zach Stafford at The Advocate magazine. Fact check. President Trump just shared that he plans to eliminate AIDS in 10 years. Together, we will defeat AIDS in America and beyond. That's what he said last night during the State of the Union. But his policies so far have only made the epidemic worse.
1: Just one example from Garence that uh, pointed out in 2017, the Trump administration fired all members of the HIV AIDS Advisory And that's just one example.
0: And then my pencil's just sitting right there. Well, BuzzFeed News reporter Dan Vergano spoke to healthcare experts about this new policy agenda and joins us now to talk about what they have to say. Good morning,
4: Dan. Good morning, guys. How are you doing?
0: Pretty good, pretty good. So uh, let's start here. What exactly did Trump say about HIV AIDS during the State of the Union?
4: Not a lot. Uh, It was about four sentences, and it was this call to, as you mentioned, uh... Uh, and HIV in America. Um, A little skimpy on the details, which are just coming out now uh, at 10 a.m. HHS started to uh, roll out details of the plan. Um, HHS Secretary Alex Azar has spoken out on this subject a lot in the last six months, so we kind of have a a good idea of of what he's suggesting, but he hasn't put out, you know, budget numbers yet. That's still coming up later on this month. Mm.
1: Okay, so we have a good idea of what he's suggesting. Could you talk a little bit Uh, More about that. And also, I just wanted to ask, like, this is a noble cause, but why did this policy kind of grab Trump's attention? Hmm.
4: Well, who knows? Uh, His own people uh, didn't tout it in the Friday uh, sort of backgrounder they were giving our White House reporter. So clearly it wasn't like a major thing on their radar. Uh, It seems like the speech, I mean, I'm speculating here, but, you know, uh, the speech was half uh, reaching out. Uh, across the aisle and half, like, scolding people, uh, and, you know, this was the reaching outside. This is a cause that's, you know, more associated with um, probably the Democratic side of the uh, aisle rather than the Republican side. Um, it must have come from the agency in the lead-up to the State of the Union, and the agencies put forth proposals. Please put this in the speech, Mr. President. And this one must have grabbed him as a uh, uh, good measure to show that, you know, hey, look, I'm willing to work with you guys now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and again, to kind of echo a point
0: um, Stacey Abrams made on this, absolutely, I want him to succeed. I would love to see HIV, AIDS, you know, just gone uh, in 10 years. Of course, that would be incredible no matter who does it. But uh, based on what we know about the plan and what health experts are saying, is this
4: doable? Completely, yeah. Uh, The the wonderful thing is that... uh, it, it's not news. We now have, you know, we have drugs that if you have the infection that can reduce the viral load uh, in your bloodstream down to undetectable, which means you aren't transmittable. Uh, transmission, you, you cannot, you know, infect somebody else. Uh, and we also have uh, drugs uh, like PrEP uh, that you can give to people as a preventive, uh, it's a prophylaxis. So if you can find the population that's at risk and give them uh, PrEP, and you can find the people who are newly infected and get their viral load down very quickly then you can halt the transmission uh, of this disease. And the the thing that the third leg of this is that we do have this infrastructure set up already through things like the Ryan, Ryan White Program, uh, which has been around for a long time, to, to do this. It's not like we have to create a whole public health system for dealing with uh, HIV, you know, paying for this uh, from scratch, it exists. Um, And so we we can do it. And the crazy thing about what the the details I just released this morning is that it very much echoes a plan uh, put out this summer by a bunch of those fired presidential advisors on the HIV Council, a bunch of former Obama era public health experts saying this is how we ought to do it. Okay, Um, and I
0: I know healthcare experts uh, mentioned that uh, we have to address uh, the concerns of transgender people um, if we're going to be successful. So I wanted to at least ask one question about that before we let you
4: go. Co- completely. You know, this disease affects two-thirds of the people who uh, get HIV are men who have sex with men. It's, it's most prevalent among uh, uh, communities that are sexual minorities. And so, like, the Trump administration's past uh, behavior towards these uh, people is, you know, worrisome, not to mention trying to cut the budget of this sort of thing in the past. But, you know, you can't. people will not come in for treatment uh, by a government they perceive as hostile to them, whether they're undocumented uh, I- immigrants or you know trans people, so that part of the, the equation has to be addressed. You, you cannot uh, be cruel to the people you're trying to cure of HIV. You cannot be cruel to the people you are trying to cure. Well, we'll leave it there for now.
0: Dan, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Take care.
1: All right, up next, Hayes Brown joins us to help explain what is going on in Venezuela, another topic that Trump just, mentioned in his State of the Union. Just Just it in. There. Just, just <laughs> <toss> it in. <laughs> like, do this? Welcome back. We've been hearing about Venezuela for weeks now, and Trump made a point to bring it up at the State of the Union last night. Here to explain explain just what the hell is going on is BuzzFeed Deputy World News Editor Hayes Brown. Good morning, Hayes. Good
5: morning, Isaac. How you doing, man? I'm doing pretty okay. Uh, I watched very little of the State of the Union, so I got like a great night's sleep. Nice Nice. job. Did you kind of keep up with it on the did did. a little bit? I scrolled through. It's like, huh, interesting, interesting. What was that? Yeah, what what was that? What was that? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, All right, well, listen, let's start with a tweet here. Casey Hunt said... President Trump finally hit an issue, Maduro and Venezuela, that divides Democrats. Mm. Most Dems stood and applauded. Many of the new freshmen stayed seated and stoic. So let's start here. What
5: updates did we get on the situation in Venezuela from Trump and his plans last night? Okay, so honestly, we did not get much new out of Trump. But I am really glad that he mentioned it because it's been kind of a rolling crisis for a couple of years now. And the U.S. has had an interest in what's going on down there for a minute. But Mm -hmm. things really started heating up over the last couple of weeks, when the head of their National Assembly, their legislature, Juan Guaido, declared, I am the interim president. Now, we got there by Maduro trying to weasel his way out of the fact that the National Assembly, which had been controlled by his party for the longest time, He lost control of that to the opposition a few years back. He tried to say, no, we're going to write an entirely new constitution. The National Assembly doesn't matter anymore. Tried to change the rules. Tried to change the rules up. Uh But uh, the National Assembly has been still meeting, still trying to pass laws, and still saying, no, we're the legitimate representation of the people. Uh, They swore in a new president at the beginning of the year, and that was just a couple of weeks before Maduro was sworn in for his second term, which he was voted in an election that a lot of people said was completely unfair. The National Assembly declared that there was a vacancy of the presidency, which they can do under their constitution, oh. and the interim president said, okay, it's me, I step in. And then a whole wave of other countries started to be like, yes, you are the president. Really? Yes. and Including the U.S.? Including the U.S., but not some of the other countries in the world, which I think we'll, we can get into a little bit in a second.
1: Okay, okay, so let me ask this. Let's start, let's start at home. Mm-hmm. Why does this particular crisis
5: divide Democrats? Well, because you see, Isaac, the United States has a long and cherished, storied history of fucking shit up in Latin America. Yes, mm, yes. Since yes, basically that, James that I, Monroe yes. listed mm, his doctrine mm. up until arguably the 1990s, mm-hmm. the U.S. has just been doing whatever it wanted, overthrowing regimes, uh, imposing its own economic interests in Latin America, much to the detriment of the peoples of Latin America. So it's a very fraught issue. when you. So when people see... Uh, the right-wing government of the United States trying to take on the socialist Government of Venezuela, people start to get a little worried about what that might actually mean and whether that means that the US overstepping its bounds again. And that issue, I think, is really like driving Democrats apart. Some people want to actually like take action and like help the people of Venezuela. Others want a more hands off approach to not repeat the mistakes of the past. Do we have any idea how the people of Venezuela feel about all this? So it's really interesting because, I mean, th- Venezuela has been in. A- free fall, basically, since about 2014, uh, when Hugo Chavez, their old president, who uh, was like the bane of the George W. Bush administration, died, and Maduro is his replacement. Maduro is no Chavez. He doesn't have, like, the ability to, like, rally the people, really, like, get the people going for the Venezuelan government. So he has been depending on a system of bribes that Chavez set up, using Venezuela's oil money to keep the regime propped up. But when oil prices collapsed in 2014, they just kept trying to push those bribes through, people running low on supplies and, like, basic needs and goods. So they started printing money as anyone could tell you, is a bad idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Huge amount of inflation, nothing in the grocery stores, humanitarian crisis uh, that has caused 3 million Venezuelans to flee the country over the last couple of years. Wow. So it's a really fraught situation. The people of Venezuela are tired, they are hungry, uh, but they also you know, have been told by Maduro over the last couple of years and by Chavez before that, that the U.S. wants to come in and, as per its past, fuck shit up again. Yeah. So it's a really, like... Tense, fraught situation there.
1: And let's speak about that. Just, uh, you, the magic word you just said that really made a lot of things click for me was oil, yes. right? And so I'm remembering this image, I think it was a week or two ago, of John Bolton yes. kind of holding a, a yellow notepad, mm-hmm. which almost looked posed to me, like
5: almost, and it said, 5,000 troops to Venezuelan border. What's that all about? So, uh... That was John Bolton, was there in the White House press room, and he had the, actually this yellow pad that said 5,000 troops, Colombia. Carla Zabludowski, our Latin America correspondent, who's actually in Venezuela right now reporting. Oh, really? She, yeah, she is. Okay. Uh, she called up a source in the Colombian defense ministry soon afterwards, and they said, we have no idea what he's talking about. So the thinking right now is that was kind of a bit of a bluff. To be like, so here's what we could do. Mm-hmm. Going to flash this to the world? Because Bolton's no dummy. He knows what he's doing. He knows better than almost anyone in the Trump administration how to pull the levers of government power. And so he knew that by flashing that, it would be seen and the message would be heard in Venezuela. Do, so do we think one, the message did get heard? Two, really what I'm asking is what can we expect next? That's a great question. So the Trump administration has put a bunch of sanctions on Venezuelan oil now, which is something, a step that had been like held off on until this point the thinking behind it goes that the military is one of the few groups that really still backs Maduro. And even that's starting to splinter a little. The thinking is that the pressure that comes from the oil revenues crashing out because no one wants to deal with getting around U.S. sanctions will cause the military to suddenly back Guaido instead of of Maduro and that we will have a transition of power in Venezuela and everything will be hunky-dory. But the U.S. in the last couple of years does not have a good track record saying this president of another country must go, and then that president going, mm. see Syria. Mm. So there's a lot up in the air right now. Things could go a couple different ways. Maduro could launch a huge crackdown. Uh, Brazil and Colombia, there have been worries that the, they could take some of military action. There's no indication of that happening right now. Mm-hmm but people are worried, people are concerned about what the next step is for Venezuela because there's so much up in the air. All right, well that sounds like Hayes, we're gonna have you back on in
1: the not too distant future to keep us abreast of the situation in Venezuela. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You keep so much knowledge in your head and I really (laughs) appreciate you sharing it. Glad to be here. Thank you. Up next, we are taking a look at the history of black women and fur. Yes, it is Black History Month and that was a fascinating article in the New York Times.
0: Writer Jasmine Sanders wrote this. A year ago, I decided that I wanted to write about an image that had become almost archetypical. A black woman in an American city, usually Chicago or Detroit, in a big mink coat. I kind of wanted to untangle its cultural roots. Where did that image come from and what did it mean? Uh, Guys, Jasmine did write about it and she did that. Uh, She's here with me now. Good morning, Jasmine. Good morning. I was so enthusiastic and, and grateful for this piece because just seeing the headline I was like oh yeah I know I know, th- I know yeah. this image you know um, yeah. Aretha Franklin Tony Morrison mink coat like all of that and it always did feel powerful in contrast to the politics of fur yes um, so let's start here what was the reaction like uh, to your piece when it went live
6: the reaction was largely positive mm-hmm. like almost overwhelmingly okay, positive. okay I was like is PETA coming for her not PETA no okay. the PETA girls have been fine mm. A few racist, but like this—that's okay. just normal. You know. But um, yeah, it was almost overwhelmingly mm-hmm. positive with other good. Black women and other Black people who recognized the image and mm-hmm. the emotion behind it immediately. Absolutely,
0: so, it was like, so oh really my gosh, she connected yeah. dots. That's powerful. Yeah. Well, um, in your story, there are so many beautiful lines and quotes. You. Um, you quote your own mother, and mm-hmm. she told you, "My mother never had a house, but she had fur." Mm-hmm. Um, why was owning uh, fur uh, more than just about looking good for Black women?
6: So, you know, my family's from Chicago. So, my grandmother migrated from Arkansas, a mm-hmm. tiny town called Holly Grove, Arkansas, okay. to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And obviously, she was pursuing that sort of American dream, mm-hmm. right? Home ownership, mm-hmm. college education for your children. Right. And those were just things that, for any number of reasons, redlining and mm-hmm. racist housing policies were unavailable yes. to her. And so, She kind of, I mean, just because she didn't have those things Mm -hmm. didn't mean that she didn't want to appear prosperous and she didn't want to put her money towards things that made her look good and feel good. And also things that could be passed down right. to her children. And mm-hmm. so fur kind of became that for yeah, my mom. it's like mom.
0: An, an investment. And I love like towards the opening, you just mentioned like how much, even now, like the, the work that your mom yeah. and then money your mom puts in into taking care of them. And it was just like, oh yeah. my God, because it's, it's a precious item. Um, mm-hmm. Something else, and I just tweeted this line because I was like, woohoo! Um, you write, as soon as black women could afford to buy mink coats, yes. white society and white women said fur was all wrong. And you know, I know now like, you know, I think Chanel recently, Gucci, you know, all other designers are like just forsaking it. When did this kind of moment uh, collide though? When did they intersect?
6: So um, you see in the 1980s mm-hmm. was when black families were the closest they've ever come to closing the mm-hmm. wealth disparity gap. Mm-hmm. So you see black families who have benefited so greatly from all of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and being able to live in American cities where there was less mm-hmm. explicit segregation right. and more job opportunities. Mm-hmm. So you see the gap between them lessening in the 1980s. So there's a study by the Public Research Bureau published mm-hmm. in 1991 that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. notes that in 19 1967, only 266,000 black people Mm. were affluent, meaning at the Mm. time earning more than $50,000. And you see that figure jump to over a million Mm. by 1980. So by 1980, one in seven black families Mm. were earning over $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that the 1980s was also the time of the founding of PETA. PETA was founded in 1980. And so there's a sense that you know, as soon as we could afford to get it, the marker kind of shifted, mm-hmm. even though it's not, I'm not by any means saying that they're directly right, causal, right. but just that it's a wild coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, it's that's, the and that's
0: sense. American culture, it yeah, all yeah, together. It's
6: just such a wild coincidence. Yeah, and, and, that and to that point, I wanted to talk about the
0: the campaign uh, that PETA did, and I remember when she passed away, I think this was yeah. like kind of circulating on Twitter, to Aretha Franklin. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that, because that was not a coincidental moment of race.
6: No. <laughs> that wasn't that, that wasn't coincidental. So um, you see, PETA really revving up their anti-fur advocacy mm-hmm. in the 1990s. In mm-hmm. the 1980s, they'd fo- focused a lot on seal hunts, and they were really successful in banning seal hunts here and in um, the UK. Mm-hmm. But the 1990s, you really see them focusing less on research facilities and lab facilities and like animal cruelty in that manner, and mm-hmm. more on anti-fur. Okay. And the decade is kind of exemplified in that really eponymous PETA image of Mm -hmm. like a Mm blood-soaked fur coat. Mm -hmm. So um, Aretha Franklin was the performer chosen for Bill Clinton's inaugural performance Mm -hmm. and she wore this amazing mink coat. And Mm -hmm. she's also just lifelong been throughout her entire career, a Detroit girl. Has always had any number of sumptu- sumptuous fur coats, mm-hmm. and PETA, in I believe 2005, mm-hmm. wrote a letter to her. The vice president of PETA wrote a letter to her that mm-hmm. is just almost astounding mm-hmm. in its it's and it's arrogance and it's nastiness. Mm-hmm. You know, he he insults her weight. Mm-hmm. He tells her she looks old, mm-hmm. and he just in no un, in no kind terms says you need to get rid of your fur because you look bad in it and mm-hmm. you look big in it. And of course, she kind of rightfully. Mm-hmm at them. Yeah, absolutely. To, up until the last days of her life,
0: I feel like it's yes. hard for her coats. Well, well, one last question. There's so much we could get into, but yes. you also note, um, and I think this all comes together, that so often the commercial habits of black people, the things we decide to use our money to buy, um, are demonized. Um, have you seen this happen with other trends?
6: Yes. So going back to the study that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is as the wealth gap is lessening between black families and white families, Mm -hmm. the chasm is growing between affluent black families Mm -hmm. and lower class black families. So you see sort of a burgeoning gap between Mm -hmm. the affluent black people and black people who as the study says were mired in degradation. Okay. And so you see this people take poverty to be a personal demerit, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're poor because you Something did this and you did, you did that. And so so often it feels like people point to black people's commercial habits as evidence of why they are poor mm-hmm. or why you are broke or why you are in this circumstance. And with regard to certain items, you've seen the marker shift quite a few times. I don't know if you remember the Crystal Champagne mm-hmm. thing of the yes. 19 the yes. early 2000s yeah. where yeah. the owners of Crystal kind of said, "We don't like that. Yeah, we don't want the rappers talking." Right, we about don't want it. the hip-hop yeah, sect yeah. drinking Crystal even yeah. though they've been responsible for, for Crystal being a part of American culture at right. that point, you right. saw that establishment say, This isn't what we imagined mm-hmm. this brand to mm-hmm. be. And so yeah. that that kind of also heralded Jay-Z's um, Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. where he said, you know. Like Tommy if, Hill figure as well. Yeah, and, and like, there was a rumor that Timberland mm-hmm. had felt similarly, like mm-hmm. they didn't like the Urban Association mm-hmm.
0: so the, the The moment it becomes popular for a certain class of black people, all of a sudden those brands, which are profiting from it and the attention, mm-hmm. want to distance themselves. Yes. Well. well, Jasmine, thank you so much for writing this. I love great thank critical really cultural reporting that is burned out of experience in history. You yes. know, this is about you and your family too. Um, um, so thank you. Everyone read it. Read it and keep talking yes. about it. We want to take this to the timeline. Tell us what you think about black women and fur. And if the spirit moves you, uh, send us your favorite pictures of black women wearing them using the hashtag am to dm Shout out to the cover of Sula by yes. Toni Morrison when we see Sula in that fierce fur coat. That's yes. one of my memories. Um, up next, uh, Isaac is going to talk about the Fuck, Fuck Jerry movement. <laughs> fuck, Fuck Jerry. you yep. trash.
1: <laughs> thank you
6: so much, thank love. Thank you for having so, me. You.
1: Here's a tweet from recent guest of the show, Adam Conover. The Instagram account and media company Fuck Jerry has made a fortune by stealing jokes from comedians and using them as a foundation to sell ads to major brands. Hashtag Fuck Fuck Jerry. Meg Wright, comedy editor at New York Magazine, who started the Fuck Fuck Jerry movement, joins us now. Meg, how are you?
7: I'm good, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thanks for all the work you've been doing. I wanna start just for those that don't know Fuck Fuck Jerry. How does the account, how does that meme account basically use other people's content to make money?
7: Uh, Well, I guess first of all, I would say they've been around since 2011 and uh in the early days they built this big following uh by you know stealing other people's work and you know stuff like posting a screenshot of a tweet but then cropping out the username so there was no way to know who wrote that and it all just kind of looked like coming from fuck jerry And so more recently, uh, because they have so many followers, they charge different brands for ads based on those number of followers. And then additionally, they have uh, a couple of their own products. They have a tequila line, they have uh, a card game, they have clothing and stuff like that. So um, I noticed more recently they were essentially stealing people's tweets and turning those into ads for their own products. And these people had no idea they weren't paid. Um, so I think that's a good summary of all that. They're not
1: even just stealing memes, but literally stealing memes and, and selling them uh, as a way to make money. Now, this all started your, your Fuck, Fuck Jerry movement when you wrote about Comedy Central advertising shows like Broad City on Fuck Jerry's Instagram. So why do you want to draw attention to those ads?
7: Well, I mean, like Adam Conover said, um, at least within the comedy world and uh, among people who create funny original content online, it's not breaking news that Fuck Jerry steals content and sort of, became so successful because of other people's work. Um, But Comedy Central was, it kind of twisted the knife a little too much for me because I I didn't think a comedy network uh, should support people who were ripping off comedians. Um, But I I, I wouldn't have discovered it uh, without the Fire Festival documentaries that came out last month. So that's kind of what led to it.
1: So that kind of drew your attention to it. But yeah, I understand completely Like comedians, especially so protective and rightfully so of the jokes that they write. So to have somebody just plucking it up and using that to make rad ad uh, ad revenue. Uh, I also want to point this out. Uh, Illustrator and designer Jen Lewis tweeted, these ancient screenshots are from back in the day when Fuck Jerry first started to create ads around stolen jokes. It made me feel like garbage then and it still does now. And I'm so grateful that Meg Wright has started Fuck Fuck Jerry. So when did you start to realize that the hashtag was starting to get results?
7: Uh, So I was tweeting about just sort of my general frustrations with Fuck Jerry and um, kind of floating the idea of uh, making more people aware about it and sort of. Uh, employing comedians and people who care to sort of get their fans to care and to support original content by unfollowing the account. Um, and Judah Freelander, he's a comedian. He was on Thirty Rock. Great guy. He's the one who suggested the hashtag. Um, and so I started using that. Other people piled on, and then there were a couple comedians uh, like Tim Heidecker and Pat Oswald and Vic Berger were really early supporters. Um, so thanks to those kind of comedians, it sort of snowballed and more and more comedians jumped on board, which is great to see.
1: So famous comedians with huge followings. Uh, but it didn't stop there. Here's a tweet from stake'em. Stop supporting <laughs> curator companies and accounts that don't ask creators for permission to use their content and then profit off their creativity. Stake'em bless. Uh, okay, so that's Stakeum. What's it yeah. like to see brands and corporate accounts get involved? Sorry, what was the question? What's it like to see brands and corporate, oh. like, like not just comedians, but literal brands, kind of get involved in this?
7: Right. Well, I mean, I haven't seen too many brands get involved the way Stakeum has. I think Stakem is its own its own beast. Um, but I, I'm I'm extremely overjoyed to see Stakem join. The fuck, fuck Jerry fight.
1: <laughs> you're, you're, it's, it's, a, it's a big tent. You welcome Stakeums into the exactly. fuck, fuck Jerry movement. Uh, now, the founder of Fuck Jerry, Elliot Tabelli, responded with a post on Medium where he pledged the Fuck Jerry account will now ask for permission before reposting other people's content. Do you think right. that addresses the actual problem?
7: No, I think uh, so. A couple years ago, there's another a similar Instagram account. He's called the Fat Jewish, and it's the same story: posting stolen stuff, turning it into you know profiting off that, monetizing it. Um, so we kind of we covered the issue of crediting people already. Um, I, I think at this point, it's more about compensation. It's about monetizing people's content. So I was. Um, I guess I was disappointed the statement really didn't address the idea of payment, which I think most of the comedians speaking out about this uh, were more focused on.
1: Kind of like, hey, listen, you should you should pay us for the content that you stole. What would be the ideal outcome of the fuck fuck Jerry movement in your eyes? I know you just tweeted, I think it was like seven hours ago that they've already lost 300,000 followers, but they still have 14 million. What, what does success look like for you?
7: Um, I think success to me, success looks like, um, uh, first of all, starting a conversation about this kind of stuff, getting more people to care about it and, um, creating something where anyone who was online a lot, uh, can no longer be blind to sort of fuck Jerry's history, how comedians and other people feel about it. Um, they can make their choice to follow or not. Um, but I don't, I want it to be known. I want people to learn about it um, so in, in terms of that i feel like it's been pretty successful
1: i was gonna say meg i feel like you've been very successful in raising awareness around this issue and thank you so much for coming on am to dm to talk about it
7: thank you for having me appreciate it
1: really appreciate it well listen use the hashtag fuck jerry you can see all sorts of things that people are saying up next saeed and i are responding to a few more of your tweets Question: You ever, you ever have something stolen from Fuck Jerry? You ever have? Not that I know of. Not that you know of, and that and that's part of the problem too, right? I do see
0: things. Actually, just this Alp, one of our coworkers. I, uh-huh. There was a meme about RuPaul's Drag Race that I saw, and I was like, put in my Instagram story, and he was like, they stole it from my tweet, and I was like, ah, my
1: god, right? It happens a lot. It happens. It happens a lot. So, I so did, much. I
0: did not know about. I mean, I know Fuck Jerry for many reasons is trash. I didn't know about how um, these different accounts uh, leverage you know, the followers to make money, because I was like, how are they making, because I understand not getting credit, that's irritating and, like, shitty, but, like, being like, oh, they're literally making money. Yeah, and,
1: like, like, sponsored, like, they they use sponsored, like, they steal the content, and then they don't just post it to their account, they literally use it in sponsored ads, and it's wild. while media creatives across the industry are losing their jobs. Yeah, and and that's what I think of Jen Lewis, too. Like, Jen Lewis is such an incredible designer, and her stuff is always so funny, and then to just see that, Selling tequila. Mm. Well, listen, we asked you all what stood out most to you about last night's State of the Union. Jess says, I live in England and slept through it. Fair. <laughs> Fair. But I read so much about the phalanx of women in white and the force of their applause that I was disappointed when I got to actually watch. Huge strides have been made, but damn, we've got work to do. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point. I mean, one, it was like, wow,
0: look at how many women compared to how few women there usually... <laughs> Usually are, and of course the contrast to the other side of the aisle. There are, of course, uh, women Congress people um, in in the Senate and the House, but not very many. So it's it, yeah, it's like it's like oh great, it, it's, yeah, it, it's you know we talk about this all the time with diversity, but it's like you can't give yourself a huge pat on the back when it's like oh we hired like two black people, we got two black people on this room. <laughs> oh my
1: god, she <laughs> you know, it's like oh my
0: like, it's embarrassing. Uh, we publish
1: one writer of color. <laughs> it's like ah, <laughs> oh. like, uh, there's yeah. a lot of other yeah. roles to fill. Yeah, and yeah. Absolutely.
0: well um <laughs> really Ruth said the boy named Trump falling asleep was dry <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I yes. know I just and we, we I talked about this last night I and I intentionally kind of avoided talking about that kid you know today and and and, and yesterday mm-hmm. you just kind of keep it going because I just it, bullying is awful, and what has happened to that kid is terrible. It's truly um, terrible. And I don't think what I've learned about bullying and anti-bullying efforts, just putting someone in the national spotlight doesn't tend to help.
1: To help, unless <laughs> you dynamic. act super cool in that moment, which I got to say, Joshua, you did. You pulled it off. She was like, you I'm changed, a- you like- changed the narrative, buddy. Like, I'm it's taking a, a drill. Y'all <laughs> like going well, get me out here. Miss <laughs> Carrie had this to say about Saeed's conversation about mm. black women in fur. Jasmine, your essay is a gateway drug. Ooh, yeah. And we need a book about black women and furs, preferably a coffee table size to display prominently in our front rooms. And that what? is just a good idea.
0: That's a great idea. Jasmine, I don't know I've- if you...
1: We're going to talk. I want- yeah! We're going to that.
0: we, go, wait, we no, go, make that it's, it's wonderful. And I, I saw someone, I think Carrie uh, tweeted this that it was like her, her favorite essay so far of the year. And I agree. Like, if you want to, uh, I'm talking about books all the time that I love, but if you want to, what's Saeed's favorite essay so far of 2019, mm. it's that essay by Jasmine. So thanks for joining. Us. Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, thank you to all of our guests, Lisa and and that wonderful lipstick. I just wanted, as an aside, it was great. Uh, Darren Sands, Dan Vergano, Hayes Brown, Jasmine Sanders, and Meg Wright. Thank you all. Good morning.
1: What a morning. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. It's only Wednesday. Have a great rest of your day. It is only Wednesday, but tomorrow will be Thursday. And then what comes after that? Friday. There it is.